0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Microbe podcast. The Bill and Andrew are your hosts today. And this is part three of our extended holiday special on bacterial taxonomy. Professors Ian Sutcliffe, Phil Hugenholtz, and Mark Pallant continue with us. And we're closing off talking about nomenclature and the recent renaming of phyla. So my opening question to anyone is, what is the difference between nomenclature and taxonomy? Let's give it to Mark.
2: Taxonomy is the scientific classification. You know, How do you decide what's in which group and how those groups fit within other groups and so forth? Nomenclature is just how do we stick a label? on the things that we have discovered or that we've circumscribed and traditionally taxonomic nomenclature has relied on latin as the kind of lingua franca that was the language of the science at the time of linnaeus linnaeus used latin and greek roots so the names that we have used for bacteria and for archaea are, are based on latin and greek roots primarily that's one of the rules in in the code these names have to be presented as latin often they're not (laughs) They're a long way from classical Latin. They're what we call neo-Latin. But they're made up in a way that they look like Latin words. That's one of the rules. In fact, if you look at the rules of nomenclature generally, otherwise they're very lax. And in fact, they go so far as to say that you can use completely arbitrary coinages. You can you can you can do whatever you like, as long as you make them. Latin. Now, the thing is, if you use classical Latin uh, and Greek roots, you have to have a certain degree of understanding of how those languages work to do it correctly. And one of the big bugbears is that in Latin, adjectives agree with the noun in terms of gender. So if the noun is masculine, the adjective has to have a masculine form. So, for example, in Staphylococcus, aureus, you know, we have aureus has to agree with the, the, the ending coccus. Uh, because they're both in the medicine. So we couldn't call it Staphylococcus aurea or aureum, because that would be bad Latin. But the problem is that most people now uh, are not learning Latin at school, they don't have any familiarity with it, uh, and they just don't appreciate these issues. And so there are a group of nomenclature experts who who say, well, we know how these rules work and you must apply them. And people, when they want to rename, when, when they want to name a new species, they have to go along and make sure that they comply with that. It turns out, of course, that even the taxonomists of yesteryear didn't know their Latin and Greek well. There are still some validly named species that break the rules. You know, have a a, a genus name that's in the neuter and then an adjective that's in the feminine form, and they haven't been corrected. And one can argue, is this important or not? In some ways, you can argue it. If someone presented a paper and they didn't, and it was written in English, but they used slang, or they didn't bother with spelling conventions or grammatical conventions, that's a bad thing. We'd all say that was wrong. if we're gonna do that, why don't we say that it's wrong to use bad Latin, malformed Latin or whatever. The other argument is that these are just arbitrary labels. And one of the things that the code makes clear is that they don't have to actually mean what they say and then you have to mean anything. So the fact that we call Haemophilus influenzae, Haemophilus influenzae, we, we still do that, even though we now recognise it has nothing to do with influenza. And, and the code makes clear that you can't just go and rename something because your knowledge increases about its phenotypic properties. or, or you, you can't broaden or, or, or narrow the, the way in which the name is placed because of that. If it turns out that you called something, you know, we, we, we've done it. We've called things, we've called chicken chip micro. If it turns out that chicken chip microbe actually occurs in pigs as well, we don't go back and rename it, we just keep the original name. And so when you look at the fundamentals, really that's all there is to it. They have to be Latin and you can draw them from wherever you like. There is a whole incrustation of of recommendations that say, well, when it's a Greek root, you put an O between it and the next root. When it's a Latin one, you put an I and all this sort of stuff. But these are just recommendations and they couldn't be ignored. And in many ways, they're just fussy. And, and, they, and they're and actually intimidating to people, off-putting. And I think it's time that we actually swept this away. I'll speak a bit in, in a moment about an even more radical plan to sweep it away, but but at the very basic, we can just say that let's just stop being quite so fussy about the way in which descriptions and names are... the way in which names are formulated and described.
3: Well, well actually, now I want to hear your radical plan, but uh, <laughs> for sweeping it all away. But no, just I was going to add that I... Speaking very personally, so not speaking as chair of the ICSP, but for myself, I'm pretty relaxed about this idea of Latin being what one might call approximate Latin rather than perfect Latin. Because at the moment, we have a a small group of people who serve the bacteriological and archaeal communities very well by, by checking the formation of names. But the reality is is that probably maybe in a decade's time that, that, that's a dwindling band of people by their own admission. And and the reality is in a, probably a decade's time there'll be very few people that can recognize whether a name is malformed or not. And actually I think by then we will just get on with it. If the name sounds vaguely like a Latin binomial, we'll accept it as a as a valid name. And and actually it's worth it won't happen quickly, but it's worth pointing out that the code itself, the code and nomenclature that the, the ICSP looks after, is a living document. It evolves over time. So... So the, it evolved
2: very, very slowly. Parts exactly. of that code go back over 150 years to the Kendall yeah. laws of 10. Yeah.
3: We're now currently on the 2008 revision, but, but the ICSP itself is presently has a public debate underway through Slack, which will end at the end of December and will lead to the publication of a 2022 revision of the code. And, and some of the things that change are minutiae that people that don't have a gra- grammaticist's understanding of Latin won't be able to follow. You know, it is a code that evolves over time, and I can certainly, casting my eye, you know, more than a decade into the future, see it see it evolving to a point where the the requirements on absolutely perfect Latin perhaps get relaxed.
2: Well, those those requirements aren't even in the code. It just says the words have to be Latin. It doesn't say they have to be perfect Latin. Uh, and and as I say, many of these these so-called recommendations, incrustations upon the basic heart core of the, of the code that is a series of rules. We we can talk about this in several ways. What One uh, point that's worth making is that principle one of the code says aim at stability in names, and I propose that we talk about that in a short while. Before that, let me just talk about some ideas about how we can make names as we go forward. So working with the Harren Oren uh, and we're working on the chicken gut, I said to him, look, we want to name 600 species. How are we going to come up with 600 names quickly? And, and you know, Normally, as, as Ian's pointed out, it's one name, one paper. People have loads of time to sort of think about that name and, and, and polish it up and whatever. But, we, you know, we need 600. So I said, well, what we can do is we can just use this combinatorial approach. So we'll just take, you know, the first route will be the host or, or the context like chicken or bird. Second one will be, well it's the gut or feces, you know, the the sample that we're dealing with. And the third one, we can just use a lot of generic words that mean microbe, you know, microbium, or or soma, or plasma, or what, you know, that don't mean, that have no specific meaning. Obviously, we can't use things like coccus, because that implies we know the, the morphology down the microscope. But but there are many of these terms that can, can be used. And if you did that in a combinatorial way, you end up, if you use 10 roots at each position in the first, second, third, out, out of just 30 roots, you end up with a thousand names. And we applied that approach. And it, it was productive in that setting. And then went on with our, uh, and we wrote a paper where we suggested a million new names using the same kind of approach. But it soon became clear that there were two problems with that. One is that even if you use that approach and use this combinatorial approach to generate many, many names, it turns out that the number of new species that are out there in particular ecological context are much, much higher than, than we can make names for. So if we just wanted to make names for gut microbes, with our most creative thinking, we could perhaps come up with a few hundred or a few thousand. But we know that if we look at all the vertebrate gut microbiota out there, there were going to be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of names. So that descriptive approach, to trying to describe things and creating a name, it didn't scale very well. And the other problem is that if you start reading all the different roots and you start concatenating them, you end up with some very, very long names. And, and, and one of the key points is that these names are just handles, and we want them to be handy and easy to use. We don't want to have a name that like Intestine microbium. You know, we don't want to have a long word like that. We want them to be short and punchy so that we can remember them. And so that was where we got to sort of a, a year or so ago. But I, looking at GTDB, Phil set us a, a problem in that, as it turns out, in GTDB, they, they they named all of these uncultured species, but they named them with placeholder names that were more like, you know, telephone numbers or, or postcodes that were useful placeholders, but they totally hard to remember, to say, you know, SP00066918914, you know. That's a good species, that one. We'd have uh, genus, uh, genus names like E2, and I said, no, That what we've got to do is we've got to rename all of that stuff. Like we did with the chicken gut, where we did 600 Linnaean binomials, we've got a pro- pro- properly formed Latin names, to everything in GTDB. And and from what I remember, about a third of the things in GTDB species are named, two thirds of them have yet to be named. So- Can that- I just
4: play devil's advocate for one second? Yeah. I mean, several people have said to me and I've been on Twitter too, of course, that they kind of like the placeholder names because then they know that's an uncultured species or an uncultured
2: lineage as opposed to one with a Latin name. So
4: what's your thoughts on
2: that? Well, there, there, there is obviously within the code one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that the the current code ha, has its problem with uncultured, but it does have a, a get out. It says if it's uncultured, you can stick Candidatus in front of it. You still give it a perfectly formed Latin name and stick Candidatus in GTDB. You decided not to do that. NCBI still does do that. There are arguments for and against it as to whether it's cumbersome and all that sort of stuff, but there is already a, a, a way of, of of flagging things to say well. This is Candidatus. But in a sense, you know, where do you draw a line? Because some of those things that haven't been cultured have been we're very well characterised. People have reconstructed their metabolism, done studies on them. You know, uh, Mycobacterium lepre really shouldn't have a name, even if it's in the approved list, because it's never been grown cr- in cr- extenic cr- culture. There's a, another organism called Mycobacterium lepromatosis, which it has very similar pathology and ecology, uh, and that doesn't have a valid name because it can't be grown. So, you know, what... Wh- wh- this fundamental issue, why should we flag things just on this operational criterion? They're going to be able to grow it and stick it into culture collections. It, that, that seems to be a, a bit mistaken. I know I've ar- argued that, well, we can muddle through with candidatus, but fundamentally, I don't think that that is the way forward.
3: The issue that I have with the use of the candidatus status is that, for clarification, candidatus names lack priority, which means that they can be effectively overwritten by anyone who says, well, Those people called it Candidatus X Y, but I want to call it Candidatus. I I want to name it A B. You know that is a fundamental flaw. Without getting too detailed about it, the concept of priority. In reality,
2: that has very, very seldom happened. There's been one or two cases. Thousands of Candidatus names.
3: It it hasn't happened very much in the past because we've been dealing with relatively small numbers of organisms coming into culture. But if people are naming, if we have a. Facility to name uncultivated organisms, then people might be naming at scale, as indeed you have done yourself, and and then and then people might say, well, actually, I'm going to overwrite all those candidate names with my name. We, you know, if people start <laughs> publishing papers that have ten thousand names in them, then then we could have absolute yeah. But then names. in
2: that situation, this is down to peer reviewers and editors to do their job and say you can't name it; that's already been named. The idea that there are these kind of Olympian gods. Of, but, of nomenclature that to sky use that and say those names have standing or they don't that's irrelevant for most people
3: but to use the sort of argument you would have used you, you know if somebody proposed a whole load of names they would challenge the editor and say why can't i do that these names don't have priority yeah so, they can do that my, my point is and the editor
2: would say the first principle of the code is aim at, t- at stability of names you're just creating confusion
3: but unless names have priority they don't have they don't achieve that stability because somebody can always override. Well, I'll just finish by saying on that point that there is a reason why rules of priority exist in all of the major codes of nomenclature for plants, for animals, and for bacteria and archaea. And the fact, therefore, that Candidatus names lack priority is its Achilles' heel by you know, and it and it well, I, I would
2: mean, argue that you're talking about the two percent yeah. that have been cultured up till now. This is a little parochial argument over the last century or so. In the millennia to come, when we discover the million other bacteria that haven't been named yet, nobody's going to care about priority because we'll be naming the, the tens of thousands or, or hundreds of thousands at a time. But
3: no, so systems obtain their authority and obtain their stability to go back to principle one from their rules. So, <laughs> so yes, so the C code was mentioned there, and I'll probably explain this as quickly as I can through some historic context. I made a gag when we were talking earlier. It was a cheap gag, but it was a good one that the, you know, the committee should really be better called the International Committee for the Systematic of Cultural Prokaryotes, and, and, and the code itself should, would be better off called the International Code for the Nomenclature of of Prokaryotes. That's because Rule 30 of the Code places culture at the heart of the ability to validly name bacteria or archaea under the current system. And that, of course, creates this headache. It's been, it's been an elephant in the room for a long time now. that that we cannot validly name uncultivated organisms. So one of the first people to really sort of take this on, Ramon Russell-O'Mora and Costas Constantinis, I hope I'm pronouncing Costas's name right there, published a a fairly provocative article in ISME Journal about this. And about the same time, Barney Whitman published some very high-profile proposals to amend the code and nomenclature that would allow the use of genomic sequences type and would therefore bring uncultivated organisms under the um, IGS, under the under the umbrella of the of the, uh, the code of nomenclature. Personally, I was in favour of that, but when it went to the vote of the ICSP, it became very clear that the majority of the ICSP were not the two-thirds majority of the voting members of the ICSP voted down the Whitman proposals, and that meant that the code stayed as it was. It meant that the valid naming of uncultivated taxa cannot be achieved under the under the ICNP, and so it became inevitable, based on that, I think, that a separate code and nomenclature that would allow the naming valid naming of uncultivated taxa would be developed, and a group of people has been working on that. In interest of full disclosure, I am one of those people, and, and so is Phil, so we have been working on the development of a, a parallel code and nomenclature called the SEAT code, which would allow the naming of uncultivated tax and provide a naming and a framework. A manuscript describing with the first draft of that code, or version one, should we say, of that code is currently under, under peer review. So people interested in the SEAT code can, can find out about a bit more about it through the uh, ISME website. There is a, a link from within the um, ISME website. One of the reasons for that is that I mentioned earlier that the the ICSP operates under the umbrella of the IUMS, one of the visions that we have for the operation of the SEAT code, because codes of nomenclature do evolve over time, they need structures to maintain them, and we expect that the SEAT code will will be administered under the umbrella of the ISMI society, and that is very much a work in progress. But we would like to think that we could use the SEAT code to, I think, very rapidly, validly name you know, large numbers of taxa from from the classification of uncultivated organisms like the GTDB that we have been discussing earlier. So that initiative is 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 coming and hopefully coming sooner rather than later.
4: My idea is to put the first draft of the code there for
2: community yeah. feedback. Yeah.
3: yeah. I, I, think, I think I think but how can you publish a paper
2: without having done that first?
3: I think you can compare a actually to where we were in 1948 with cultivated organisms. So in 1948, the first draft of what became the Bacteriological Code was published, if my memory is correct, initially in Journal of Bacteriology, and then there was a mirrored publication in what was then the Journal of General Microbiology. And that said, well, this is a workable code, and then the community got on with it. But the
2: world's changed since then, you know, it didn't have preprint in those days. It didn't have this, you know, basically you sat on what you were doing until the last moment and then published it. Uh, and everyone agreed, oh, you are the expert and we can't query you. We live in the age of Twitter. We live in the age of democratisation. Uh, and, and Seat Code really is, you know, it, 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 it's not shown itself in a great light by the fact that it's hidden itself away. You say there's a website, but there's not much on that website to tell you what's going on. What I hear down the grapevine is that they've arbitrarily drawn a QC boundary to say well, we're only going to allow you to name these things so they've trampled all over the whole idea of freedom of taxonomic thought. So it's a code of taxonomy rather than nomenclature. I, I personally, I, I welcome C code in principle, but in practice, I'm a bit concerned about the way it's being rolled out.
3: I think it'll evolve. I think it may evolve fairly rapidly. We need to put the structures in place to allow that. We are reaching out to community. In February 2021, we had online workshops that were attended by many hundreds of um, delegates, which, you know, Frankly, having been to taxonomy sessions at, at physical meetings, you're lucky if you can get 50, you know, so, so we did reach a reasonably good audience with those. And and the, dra- the very first draft of the code was made available as reading materials that were available to de- participants in those workshops. So in that, and we did get very useful feedback from the community. It was largely supportive. There were bits that had to be taken on board by, by drafting. I, I think the complexity of the document, you know, We are, I I absolutely take the point that you could argue we are a self-appointed cabal of pretend experts. But but I think the complexity of the document has required that perhaps centralised approach to coming up with a workable first draft. And now what will happen is we will take feedback from the community on how to make it an even more functional document and more suited to people's needs. I personally was less enamored of setting sort of QC thresholds, but I absolutely under the understand the idea that if you start with high QC thresholds, you can relax them in in line with the demands of the community. If you start with lax standards and inadvertently unleash a chaotic situation, that might be do more damage than good. I think we should look to see if we can put it up on the website and,
4: you know, maybe just the whole C code on the website we could probably do that while it's still in review, right? I mean, the seed code is actually in the supplementary material because it's too long to go. It ends, It's actually a brief communication to ex, sort of explain why we're going in this in this direction, and then the seed code is published in the supplementary material. Well, that, that,
2: that immediately cr- creates a uh, concern in my part, but why do you need to have such a long seed code? You know, basically keep it as brief and terse as possible. And one of the great glories of the current code is when you drill, you throw away all the recommendations and just look at the rules. It's really quite short and simple, and and adding complexity and making it harder is not the direction to go. Is to, you know, just to to pair back and say let's have a minimalist approach that works uh, rather than put layers upon layers upon
1: layers.
4: Yeah, we definitely welcome feedback on that, I think.
1: All right, Mark, you, you have been mentioning arbitrary naming of species. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, if you look at the code, it says that you're allowed to use arbitrary names. Uh, and even if you go back to Linnaeus, the link between the name and the description was, was often opaque. And there were plenty of examples of arbitrary names over decades or centuries being used in taxonomy. If you look at the problem of scale, that we've got thirty thousand, 40,000 species to be named, in GTDB, the most recent version, and Phil said there's another 17,000 coming in the next version, if I remember correctly, using the descriptive approach doesn't scale. You know, even if you spent one minute thinking, oh, I'm going to think of a Latin name that means something for each of those species, you'd have months of work ahead of you. And so what we need to do is come up with a, a, a completely new approach, a fresh approach, one that can fit in with the, the requirement that we have Latin names that look like Latin names, but are just arbitrary. They're just handles that we can use. And what we want when we want handles is things that we can grasp. So what I did was, I, 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 and you've helped me with the coding, I learned Python at the age of 61 to make this happen, is we just take the, the beginning of la- a load of Latin words, first, first five letters of, of all the words in the Latin dictionary, dereplicate that, and then shove on a load of Latin endings that can be used to form feminine nouns. and we And then... We check and we we search through 6 million entries in the English uh, wiktionary to make sure those names have never been used before, search them against all the names that have been used in taxonomy, make sure they've never been used before, and end up with the 60,000-odd names that we can apply to these uh, unnamed species. Uh, We've done that, we've released a preprint, we've released the names. We've even gone so far as the traditionalists who like to see written proper written protologues, we've even created proper written protologues, the list of the, the document that has all the prose logs for the new names for bacterial species uh, and other taxa is over 10,000 pages long, and and so I, I put that out to the community to say, look, these these are nicely formed names. They look like Latin names. If you don't know Latin, you wouldn't be able to tell they weren't actually formed from proper Latin roots. But but they're they're short. They do the job. What do you think? And we had a Twitter poll, and it was it was basically two thirds, one third. Two-thirds of people said, yeah, this is better than placeholders. One-third of people obviously didn't like it. And it's out for review at the moment. It's available as a preprint. Uh, 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 as far as I can see, this is the only... I can't see any other way in which we can name the, the number of species and uh, that need to be named at scale, at the scale needed, and stick within a kind of Linnaean, you know, well-formed Latin name framework.
4: I'm largely in support of this audacious plan, although the microbial ecologist and me does like things like the halo something or other, because then I know something about it. And I fully take on board the fact that the name does not have to capture the physiology. But I would say that the next iteration could actually be improved by looking briefly at the genome. We do have the technology, for instance, if the genome contains the gene MREB, that's a shape determining protein. So then we know that it's not a caucus. If it doesn't have MREB, it's likely to be a caucus. We could look for sulfate-reducing genes or other genes that you could actually guide those names a little bit if we wanted to capture that. Because we we do have the blueprints. We do have ability to rapidly screen them and pull out key genes that would help. And and I totally take the point that a name just has to be a a nice-looking handle. It doesn't have to reflect the taxonomy. But I am a little concerned with the early iteration of this where we put words, you know, Caco plasma, and then there was other names that were pretty similar. And, and I did notice that, but I think now in this latest iteration of arbitrary, you actually selected it to be as phonetically distinct from each other as possible. And by the way, plasma, I would look for genes, absence of cell envelope genes to indicate that it doesn't have a uh, maybe just as a cell membrane, like a microplasma, because I would have thought plasma would be attached to that kind of organism.
3: I'm broadly supportive of this. I absolutely agree that it's a very practical way, pragmatic way of naming at scale. My my concern is a, a li- little concern, which is that, say I'm a PhD student that has been beavering away in a lab for two or three years. I've I've sequenced a genome. I've been working on and analysing the content of that genome. and And I'm just getting around to writing my paper on describing that genome and naming the organism as a candidatus organism, and then this chap Palin overwrites the name in GTB for that taxon in GTB with his arbitrary name, you've had your thunder stolen, and, and how, do we, how do we prevent that happening? There's a gene deposited in the public domain at the time that genome
2: is deposited in the public domain the person will have assigned a name to it if they wanted to assign a name to it the fact that it's got a placeholder in gtdb means that nobody is bothered to do that so I, we're not yeah. writing anyone's ability to give names they can give those names perfect there's a perfectly well-formed path for doing that if you submit a a a, a, a mag to NCBI, you can give it a a name. They won't accept the name until the paper's out, but it's a very narrow window. And the thing is, these are candidatus names. So if someone says I want to, I don't like that. I want to overwrite it, and the community says people working on it says I don't like that name. We're going to give it a descriptive name. They can do that. We're not we're not forcing anyone's arm here. We're just saying when I do an analysis of chicken gut, chicken feces, or pig feces, or horse feces, and we run the GTDB toolkit over it over, well over half of what we get out there are just these placeholders. These are names that, you know, what on earth is this all about? And, and you know, if I'm trying to talk to a, to a collaborator, oh, we found that sitting on this thing, it's just a mess trying to use that. It's far easier to have Latin names. And, and so we're, we're not trying to say to anyone, this is it. We've we've colonised your area of, of of the microbial world forever and, and laid down our flag. We're just saying, look, this is a, this, these are effectively placeholders because they're candid artists.
1: Since we're on the subject of phyla, I wanted to ask Phil about this recent renaming of phyla that. That people do seem to care about. So, Phil, I think you're the one who's been why in the process. Why are you asking me? <laughs> because why, you've been in the crosshairs, and, and I appreciate your <laughs> your Twitter thread that explained it all quite nicely. The situation. So, I was wondering if you could recap yeah. on that and talk about some of the some of the flak you've been taking.
4: Well, I haven't personally been taking any flack, but I thought that the I thought the ICSP and NCBI taxonomy was taking some flack and basically this is around a very sensible proposal to include phylum in the code in the prokaryotic code so phylum
1: but, is a thing i learned about in school and you're yes, saying it doesn't it's not actually
4: it wasn't officially in the code so that means there are no real rules around governing so it's very important that it's in the code there's some there's some useful properties about being in the code. First of all, you have to have a nomenclatural type. That's that's important to, to provide a, a fixed point of reference for a group. And I, I draw your attention here to because phylum wasn't officially in the code, you could define a phylum pretty much as anything without any nomenclatural type. And so you have this, this thing, and I'm I'm as guilty as any for naming phyla without actually saying, well, what is that connected to? And the problem is if somebody makes another tree. And you've in a previous paper you've said, oh, these 316s sequences represent my phylum, you know, phyllobacteria, and then it splits up in another tree. I don't know which where the name should carry through to. So that's why that's important. And it also has no priority if it's not if it's not formally recognised. And we've seen that multiple times where the same group is given multiple different phylum names. So it's actually a long overdue and important process for the ICSP, which voted on this last year. So everybody said yes, we'll take on the rank of phylum. And then there were some specific questions. So in the prokaryotic code, all of the other ranks have fixed suffixes or uh, the higher ranks. So you have ACA for family, you have Ales for order, you have ear for class. And so we, to standardize, you want to have a, a standardized suffix for phylum, which was voted on as OTA. And then to, in order to apply this, uh, the, then the other thing is to make the type, the nomenclature type a genus, that was the other vote, which is the same for family, for instance. And so the family has a as a type genus. This is fine for the majority of phyla because if you look, these non-official phylum names are often built off the first genus of, of an early genus that's described in that group, like nitrospirota or Nitrospirae, depending on if you use the old or new name, is built from that genus name. But there are a couple of really important exceptions and that's the proteobacteria and the Firmicutes, And that's what's got everybody in a big pickle because if you follow the new rules then the firmicutes become the bacillota after bacillus and the proteobacteria become the Pseudomonadata after pseudomonas and that's what caused all of the the, the big Twitter over And and I, I was the very funny comment about from some, some wit saying that I, I made a straw poll asking people what they would like. And it was the same as the when people were up in arms about Pluto no longer being a planet. And they made a poll and everybody said, no, we want it to be a planet. And so that's what's happened. The majority of people want to keep proteobacteria and firmicutes. And there's another little interesting twist before I hand over to people that know more about nomenclature than me. And that came from the, the idea that, you know, in GTDB, we've recircumscribed what proteobacteria are. So now in GTDB, proteobacteria are just the alpha, beta, gamma classes. And, we, and we've, we've somewhat uh, recircumscribed firmicutes as well. So some people are saying, actually, we would like a different name. So it's clear that it's a different taxonomic entity. So that's an interesting consideration as well.
2: If you look at the definition of firmicutes, it just says a phylum for gram-positive bacteria, uh, and that was always that was how it was described several decades ago. And what is slightly concerning is that when these new names of phyla were published, they just said, "Oh, it's going to be called Bacillota, but it's got the same description as Firmicutes." And you think, is that really where we're at in in the 21st century that w- we define a phylum by saying, "Oh, it's the phylum for gram positives"? What should have happened is that the filer should have had names and circumscriptions that were modern, and there's still an opportunity to do that, and there's even an opportunity to save the old names, or nearly save the old names. If we just took one one of your unnamed genera, maybe one of the split genus that's that's in in uh, GTDB and you stick an A after the end of it, to say that you don't recognise it as part of being part of the original genus, if we've got one of those where we've got deposits in two different type culture collections, we could name that the type genus and we could call it Firmicutes and we could have Firmicutota, which would be near enough the same as Firmicutes, and we could save the name. But it's just this, the trouble is that the, the people that do this stuff are not creative people. They're, they're very much driven by rules and they, they have to follow the rules and they have to roll those rules out. Uh, and there's an argument to say being consistent. But if you combine consistency with creativity, you can get around a lot of these problems. So I'm half minded to go and do that actually, just to publish a paper that says here's a new genus called Firmicute, and here's a new genus called Proteobacterium, and we'll name a new phylum after it. And we'll circumscribe the phylum using the techniques of GTDB rather than waving out and saying, what's oh, the phylum for gram positives? Sometimes the nomenclature experts do get themselves into a situation where they say, We have to make this right and we don't care whether the community cares about the changes. 20-odd years ago, Hans Truber did this, where he said, oh, there's a load of bacteria that have been named where the species name is actually a noun, but it describes a thing. It doesn't say of the thing, it describes a thing. So you're you're calling this bacterium a pineapple rather than saying of the pineapple, and we must change that. And he, and he went and put all these changes over things that were already established names, and people complained at the time. And So, so it's it's a difficult issue. I mean, Ian's going to say, well, people will get used to it, and maybe they will, um- part
3: yeah. let's see a, what are you next? he actually has to, to say that. That. i was going to say that but not straight away the thing that i was going to say is that the elegance and it is a genuinely elegant document in the way it's constructed and the new rules and this is where rules are important for nomenclature are actually pretty clear now which is that the priority will follow from this which is what will prevent you from proposing alternative names is that the rules of the way the code is now written means that the phylum that contains the genus bacillus must be called the basiliota. and that is really quite straightforward, I think. Those historic definitions, like, well, these are gram-positive, genuinely guff, because they're not all gram-positive for a start. Well, showing
2: out the, the negative cuties. Yeah,
3: but I'm sure you could find some gram-variable ones if you look at the original descriptions, you know. So that system is nomenclature is really quite clear the phylum that, that, that will eventually be named that contains the the Clostridias, you know, can be given a name, one would hope it would be given a high profile name like Clostridiota, you know, that's really quite straightforward and people will get used to it. I, I'm in this interesting situation, I got involved in a spat with some veterinarian scientists about our proposals to rename Rhodococcus equi in the, in the genus Prescottella as Prescottella equi, which wasn't universally popular. And yet I am long in the tooth enough to remember the fact that that same, that many of the same people were, were very upset about the proposals to rename Carinibacterium equi as Rhodococcus equi. And, and so they all got used to calling it Rhodococcus equi quickly enough. I actually think the younger generations that come through adopt the current classification and the current mm-hmm. names pretty quickly. I'd be
4: interested to look back and see if there was a big outroar when the purple bacteria re- were renamed the proteobacteria.
2: The only way in which this matters is when someone uses the GTDB toolkit or an equivalent from the NCBI and wants to name their stuff and come up with a taxonomy. And so the names that you apply, Phil, are the ones that people are going to care about. The idea that someone in authority has named it that doesn't really have any impact. It's what what actually happens. So if you go to the NCBI taxonomy, firmicutes are still there. For proteobacteria, they haven't actually, there's no pseudomonota in the NCBI taxonomy at the moment. Now, Even though they made that declaration of something, they haven't, if you go to their taxonomy, they haven't changed it yet. And you haven't changed it in GTDB. Uh, and so it, it doesn't matter what these so-called Experts or, or, or people that, and it would be interesting to see what the seat code wants to do with it as well. But yeah, it's an interesting question, it, and there's no right or wrong answer to this. You know, it, is it like just forgetting to change the the date on the calendar when you get into January? You know, change the year, uh, and we'll catch up, or is it something more fundamental that actually we're all used to this and we. We want to stick with the old names. There's nothing to stop people using the old names as vulgar names anyway. We've had decades of of calling the filer by names that don't have any standing. So people can continue to use those names.
3: Well, my only final comment would be the reminder that the arguments are about classification. The ICSP oversees a code of nomenclature, but the rules only apply to nomenclature. And really what people are getting upset about is whether a classification matches their perception of the world or not and and that's taxonomic opinion which i think there's two issues there's a change of names because of change of taxonomic opinion and this change
2: of names because rules of names or whatever what's happened here is a change of names because the nomenclature experts want to change them nobody's re- that's what i'm saying nobody has reclassified firm duties in a different way when they call it fascinating. they just ported across decades old the grand positives, and that i think is troubling and it you know, this is where GTDB actually is consistent. It has an approach and the names in GTDB, you know, perhaps we need to just roll out protologues, so even the name things in there to say, this is the GTDB taxonomy. Here's a protologue to name this species according to the rules of GTDB, because this differs from what people said in the past. And certainly for the higher level, it will be. I mean, none, none of those things have ever been defined before. As far as I'm concerned, the world of taxonomy began with GTDB and, uh, and everything that went before was chaos.
3: Alison Murray, who Phil and I have worked with on the Seat Code project, alerted me to this quote, which is apparently from Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. Uh, and he wrote that taxonomy is described sometimes as a science and sometimes as an art, but really it's a battleground. And Cowan, who I mentioned earlier, wrote, writing in the 1950s, summarised this, that the, the taxonomists do like a good scrap.
2: You know, earlier on, we, we quoted Darwin. Let's quote Newton now. I mean, Newton, when he came to the end of his life, he said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. The arguments we've been having... Uh, uh, about a few pebbles of clinical importance or a few shells representing cultured organisms. What we should rejoice in is the fact that there is this great ocean of microbial truth, as you've called it, this sublime scale of the microbial world through the techniques that Phil and others have been developing. We now have a glimpse of that great ocean and we now have a way of charting it as we go forward. And we should be rejoicing in that instead of arguing this angels in the pinhead stuff. You know, the great vision is there. Darwin's dream is real, and it's here, and now, in sequences.
1: On that, I think we will close. That was a marathon effort. I want to thank our esteemed guests, Professors Ian, Phil, and Mark. This has been an almost crash course on bacterial taxonomy. I've been Nabil with my co-host, Andrew, and I wanted to thank you all for tuning into our holiday special of the MicroBinfi podcast. We will have a lot of extended references for you to read in the show notes, see the description on your podcast platform, and we'll see you
0: next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.